This issue on The Last Geek in Space, a special compilation episode bringing together some of Marvel UK's greatest creators, writers, designers to talk about how they broke into the business and how much they used to drink. Not to mention stories of Doctor Who, bombs and the Colombian houseboat massacre. stories just quickly of Marvel like things that happened or I was just trying to think of that you could pepper it up if you needed um well, what were people going to you know if, everyone, if someone had a, a hard night and, and they came in and they needed to have like a break and um, there were certain people that used to go and have a little snooze in the PMT room do you remember that yeah. Actually, people did more than snoozing the PMT room. There is a reason that PMT, mach- PMT machine broke. <laughs> it wasn't me. As rumour had it, Alan, I think you're no stranger to the old PMT room, no? I'm not saying anything that might be held in evidence against me in the court case. And when we had the bullpen in the um, basement, all the artists were there. There was a marketing woman who, shall we may name us in case she's trying to get another job sometime, used to go <laughs> downstairs and sleep under all the coats. And they'd all put the coats over so the bosses wouldn't see her if they came down. And oh she'd have a little God. sleep. That's insane. Yeah. But that was another thing that was kind of key at the time, I think, about the, the era we were in was quite different because um, – Paul Neary was uh, the CEO at the time. Yeah. So it was a complete artist-led oh, era. Yeah. Welcome to The Last Geek in Space, the podcast where we usually send comic book creators into the great unknown with nothing but magazines and artwork for company. This issue, we're doing something different. I've compiled a special episode of Marvel UK's creators, starting there with Kira Mulvaney, one-time project manager and senior designer at Marvel. She was joined by Maria Keane, colourist and artist supreme, presently working for IDW, and Jenny Rackett, fantastic editor. Next up is Mike Collins talking about his first gig at Marvel UK, working with some little-known writer called Alan Moore. And then following Mike will be John Tomlinson, one of my favourite writers and editors. He wasn't only an editor at Marvel UK, but wrote one of the best comics, Knights of Pendragon, and went on to be a tharg. Um, this, this is ridiculous. My, my first professional job was actually uh, a Daredevil parody written by Alan Moore. Oh, was it <laughs> Daredevil. Daredevil? The man with that sense of... That was brilliant. Yeah. I, I didn't know that was your first yeah. gig. I loved that story. Yeah. I, I've been doing fanzine strips in Masters of Infinity, um, which I've been writing and drawing, and what I hadn't realised as, a, as a, a newbie writing and drawing stuff is if you set a cliffhanger up, it was a really good idea to work out what happened next in the cliffhanger. <laughs> so I'd ripped myself into this ridiculous corner and I'd been running for a while. So me and Mark Farmer, who was inking me on that, um, we'd started getting a bit of attention, which was nice. Um, and uh, Alan, I met Alan Moore at a comics convention, I think it was in London. And um, he said he'd been reading the, the Moon Knight strip in Fancy Advertiser. And um, he really wanted to know what happened next. And I said, well, I'd like to know what happened next as well, because I'm, I'm lost. And being the cheeky bugger I was, and not thinking that this was a very bad thing <laughs> to do, I said to Alan, do you want to write the ending? 
and uh, he laughed, and I thought, oh, what, what have I done? And a few days later, I got this um, massive Alan Moore script. For, it's like about 12 pages long for a four-page comic strip <laughs> that he wrote to finish off my story. <laughs> and um, after that, he sort of, uh, him and um, Dave Gibbons and a few others were sort of pushing for me and Mark to get work in British comics. And uh, he'd written uh, this Daredevil parody and taken it into Bernie Jay, who was the editor of Marvel UK at the time, and said, Mark's drawing this. And um, yeah, yeah. That, that's how I got the job. <laughs> Oh wow! So I'm. Uh, I worked with yeah. Yeah. Bernie was great. I worked with her back in the nineties when she was back there for a while. All right. Yeah, she was a really good editor. Yeah. Jumping ahead a bit, I remember when you started at uh, Panini in Tunbridge Wells as a freelancer for a while. It's when Glenn and myself first met you, really. And um, you turned up then. Someone I don't know if it was Alan O'Keefe or Scott Quaid said, "Oh, we've got John Tomlinson in." And we both, at the time, there were no real comic creators apart from Scott it left in the office. And me and Glenn came running up to you at your desk and, are you the John Tomlinson? <laughs> who is the John, what, the opera singer? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, going back to your career, well, starting with your career, though, the first oh, yes, time I came across your name was in the early days, well, the sort of Marvel UK era of Alan Moore and Mighty World of Marvel, I think. Could you want to tell us a bit about how you started and... Yeah, well, I was um, I studied um, graphic design at um, uh, De Montfort University, which was uh, then plain old Leicester Poly. And um, in the, the second year, they had uh, like a, a placement scheme in which they'd send you out to various uh, design studios. And uh, well, I mean, you, you could sort of put in a vote for wherever you wanted to go. And uh, most people in the course were going to say Pentagram, which is a big design studio at the time, and uh, you know various sort of um, posh outfits in London, but. Obviously, I, being a huge comics fan, I really wanted to, to, to work in comics. So I sent letters out to uh, IPC, DC Thompson, and uh, and Marvel UK. And, uh, you know, I, I expect to hear from IPC and DC Thompson any day now, but, but Marvel UK <laughs> were, the, were the first to respond. And I, I went down there for what was initially supposed to be two weeks, but um, they were really short-staffed, and I ended up staying for about a month. And um, and I worked in in various offices. I worked in the, the Spider Man weekly office where they had me um, answering the letters on the letters page. So uh, you know, I, I kind of I did my best to sound as Stan Lee like as possible in the replies. And I I, I reinstated all the uh, the original hallowed ranks of Marveldom, like you know, Keeper of the Flame and Real Frantic One and so on, which um, had sort of fallen by the wayside by then. And uh, <clears throat> now that was a that was a great laugh. And I, I spent a bit of time in Bernie Jay's office as well, which was. Uh, which was great fun because it, uh, it was about the time she was doing uh, the, the Daredevils. So you had very early Almore, Alan Davis, Captain Britain stories. And uh, Almore was also writing the Night Raven text story at the time. And they were reprinting Frank Miller's Daredevil, which was uh, another thing that everybody remembers as um, you know, being a really great comic at the time. So um, the only problem was the offices themselves because so. It was in a place called uh, Jadwin House in Kentish Town, which was, I mean, now it's been converted into luxury flats, but it, um, they must have completely rebuilt the place from the inside out because it was, uh, uh, you know, you, I mean, you, you wouldn't have been allowed to, to put anybody in there now. It was in, in an office on the top floor and all the desks were arranged around the edge because, um, you know, the middle of the office, it, 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 was, it was a kind of a an incipient pit you know if you if you'd moved all of the, the the desks into the middle of the office you would have collapsed through into the floor below and uh, you know it creaked oh. perilously whenever you walked across the room 
And not only that, we were on the top floor and the, and the roof leaked. And I mean, when I say leaked, I mean, it really gushed torrents every time it rained. So you'd, you'd have to stick bins under about five different spots in the room where the, uh, the water poured through. But I mean, for all that, they're a really um, nice bunch of people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I spent a month there. And when I left um, college, I, uh, I applied for a job there and, um, and, and got accepted. So I've, you know, I've, I've, been, uh, I've, I've been in comics ever since, one way or another. Well, was Bernie still in charge when you started? Yeah, she was. Well, yeah. no, the the managing editor was uh, Tim Hampson, who was kind of the, you know the well managing editor, group editor. He kind of oversaw uh, the whole thing. But um, Marvel UK, as a whole, was then it was um, managed or the the UK interest was uh, um, a company called Grand Dreams, who used to publish um, annuals at the time, and they were owned by. Um, Two guys, uh, Brian and Peter Babani, who Alan McKenzie always referred to as the Flying Babani Brothers, and um, <laughs> now they loved reprints, which um, brought in a you know great deal of profit for a very little um, you know outlay, and they were deeply suspicious of anything original. So I remember being in Bernie's um, office one day, and um, you know she was looking through some Captain Britain artwork, and Brian Babani kind of. Uh, loomed in the doorway and they just just kind of um stared at the artwork right and said mm, yeah captain britain yeah we should have him on our letter head and there was a, a, a long pause of comedic effect and he said and our bog roll and then he walked <laughs> out and, and bernie said oh, he's such a bastard he's such a bastard um but uh I think it was um, I, I, it was not long after that, and it coincided with our move to Bayswater that um, Robert Sutherland sort of um, I may be remembering this wrong because the yeah. corporate side of Marvel UK really isn't my strong point. But Robert Sutherland, um, who later you know created Red Ant Comics, um, yeah. bought out um, uh, the controlling interests of Marvel UK and moved us all to Bayswater into considerably plusher offices. Oh. Um, so yes, that was. Um, I can't remember your question. Now. It was so long ago. No, that's so right. No, that's just that's exactly right. That's how you got in. It was um, you were there for one of the better times of Marvel UK with the Alan Moore stuff happening. And Mike Collins was on last week, and um, he was t- reminding me that his first work for in comics was Dower Devil, the Alan Moore two pager that was like a Mickey take and a Frank Miller story. Yeah, no, I mean it's. Um... It, it maybe I'm starting to imagine things now. I don't know, but I, I'm sure I remember the uh, the Dow Devil artwork um, coming in, and it was um, you know beautifully um, drawn by uh, by Mike in the style of um, Frank Miller, and of course um, you know written very much in a in a pastiche of Frank Miller's style by Al Moore. So it was uh, just um, just fantastic. And one of the great things about the Dead Devils was that you could publish a slightly um, experimental things like that, um, just oh. just really um, out of nowhere, and uh, you know the, the the readers loved it, as I remember. That was one of the best, still is one of the best remembered Marvel UK anthology titles, I think. Is it? Oh, well, that's, uh, yeah. that, so. that's good to know. You know. I mean, I've still got a, a number of issues and, um, you know, I, I did um, very little work on it, just a little bit of um, paste up here and there. But um, it was about the same time that Viva Vendetta was running in uh, in Warrior and um, David Lloyd used to come into the office a lot because he was drawing... Um, believe it or not, the Blake Seven strip for uh, Marvel UK's Blake Seven magazine, and also you know, episodes of, of Doctor Who's um, strip. And yeah, you know, he was very um, sort of uh, affable character, easy to talk to. And I, I managed to get a, managed to interview him for my uh, my thesis, which I, I did for my oh, wow. final year of my uh, my BA course. And um, and that that was that was great. And that was a real coup. And I illustrated loads of uh, samples of um, the Vendetta artworks. So, 
Yeah, and you, you, you'd get um, – uh, Chris Claremont was due to visit one day, which got everyone very excited that he didn't turn up in the end. So, um, you know, we, we were, were quite happy when, with the UK creators. Were you there when Stan Lee came over? No, yeah, well, that that was when we'd moved uh, to Bayswater. And I, I was, you know, I mean, probably 1985 or 86, and he, he came over for a, a business meeting, meeting with Robert Sutherland. But and he was shown around the offices, and, uh, and it was quite a, a surreal experience kind of seeing him at, at the end of the corridor, looking about as Stan Lee-like as you can possibly imagine. You know, this, this head that appeared at the top of the Stan Lee soapbox columns over the years kind of advancing towards you. And... Uh, you know, I said hello and I shook his hand and he said, uh, hi, I'm Stan Lee, which I, <laughs> I found strangely touching. I was like, yeah, yeah, I know who you are, Stan. <laughs> and um, I can't remember what we uh, talked about, something no, that can no. be inconsequential, but um, it was great to, to finally meet him, you know. Well, oddly enough, it's funny, so you've been involved with one of the um, series that's probably best read as a graphic novel, The Knights of Pendragon, that a lot of people regard as like Marvel UK's finest hour. I think you've co-wrote it with Dan Abnett. Well, uh, Dan Abnett and, and Steve White actually, because um, you know we would uh, we would sit down in a um, pub in Bayswater, it was at the, the Coal Hole, which I think is still there, and we we just plot out um, each episode between us, and uh, and Steve contributed just as many ideas as Dan or I did, but um, then you know we, we'd write up the scripts. Uh, separately so uh you know i wrote the first issue dan wrote the second and then and steve was the editor so he'd kind of iron out the inconsistencies but you know, the the the, uh, the the story kind of came about um it, it was kind of spontaneous spontaneously generated amongst the, the the three of us and i think what made it um unusual is uh is the artwork was um gary erskine who i don't think had had any professional commissions at that time and really was just starting out but was incredibly enthusiastic and his work didn't look like any other that of any other artist um before uh, or since really and uh, i think that um that really helped to make it stand out as um as, as something a bit different and uh, and unusual i mean when i look look back at it now like with, with any of my uh, work it's uh, all i can see is the inconsistencies uh, mostly of my my own writing but uh, i'm really pleased that it's still. I mean, it's just been reprinted again recently. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm I'm pleased that people are still looking at it and, and liking it after all this time. But um, I think that came about because um, uh, Dan Abnett had uh, submitted a, um, a proposal, which is like the, the bare bones of Knights of Pendragon, to uh, Jenny O'Connor, who was then the, the managing editor. And um, and I think for, I, I don't even, I don't know even now why Jenny got me involved, unless it was for my connection with Captain Britain, because I'd. Uh, I've been the designer on them, Captain Britain, and uh, and kind of unofficial sub editor, you know, the Marvel UK version of it. So I, I knew the character pretty well, and um, and it turned out that Dan, Steve, and I worked together um, extremely well, and all uh, all got on. So I mean, I, I still don't know even now why Jenny got me involved, but I'm uh, I'm glad she did. Marvel UK have had some amazing designers work with them over the years, from Steve Cook to Gary Gilbert to Dan the Man Rachel who was part of the infamous Colombian houseboat party incident with Jenny Rackett and Kieran Mulvaney. Dan, yeah, just tell me. us a bit. I remember you from way back when you started Panini, when you had your long hair and you're straight out of college. Yeah, yeah. But, um, my first memory, actually, of you is when we used to get the American comics in and back oh, in the yeah. day of Panini. Yeah. You'd heard a rumour that you weren't supposed to like comics to get your job. Yeah, someone tipped me off before the interview. That I don't mention you like comics. I can't remember who it was. 
but someone tipped me off and I thought, okay, and they, they asked me who, who did I know any Marvel characters? And I said, Batman and Superman. <laughs> so that was the same, you know, that got me in, I think. That was all right. They were like, they looked at each other like, mm, yeah, he's in. He doesn't know any Marvel characters, he's in, which seems odd, doesn't it? But it's what it they, does. It's the way they wanted it. They'd had that, they'd had the bit, bit before me I joined, which was the big comics. Yeah, team. we had the Marvel, you became post after Marvel. Yeah. So they kind of wanted to get away from that, I suppose, and get in people who didn't yeah. know about comics. I don't know, but it worked out fine. I just remember me and Glenn Dakin used to get the American comics in. Yeah. From Marvel. We'd Big be looking through them. them and, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd be hovering and in the background. Kind of, yeah, you'd hover and sort of, oh, Silver Surfer. That's oh, I've good. heard of that. I've right. heard of that. And then you know, it took you a few weeks to sort of come out the geeky closet and yeah, uh, yeah, admit yeah. you as a fan. Yeah, I didn't know who to trust, as, as it were. The what You know. Yeah. <laughs> the secret, you know, in the, it was like the sort of uh, Nazi We're going to talk about, what was it like for you coming to, well, Marvel UK, as it was down oh, in Panini? Amazing. Amazing. Well, my first job out of college, I was only there 18 months, believe it or not, because we moved down to Tunbridge yeah. Wells. Yeah, it was only 18 yeah. months. Oh, it felt yeah. like forever because it's your first job, but it just feels feels like it lasts forever, doesn't it? And all the people I met, that was still friends with most of them. You know, it's amazing, yeah. it's an amazing uh, gang of people, and I really enjoyed it, and I learned a lot. And they gave me a good chance to learn because I wasn't that, you know, uh, good with computers or anything like that. So I really, they gave me, a, what's the word, good training. Well, it was still the early days of magazines being designed on computers in early Quark Express and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, it was, in, it was very slow. As well. I remember doing things that just would take half an hour to do one thing. It was like, oh, driving me mad. But, yeah, it was uh, it was great times, man. Uh, Jen, I'll stick with you. Just think back to the Marvel days. Um, do you want to tell us a bit about the Colombian houseboat party? Oh, Alan, I don't know. What what what? What Colombian houseboat party? I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. I don't remember this. Uh, I don't remember. Only the best Colombian house party ever. I think it was a great idea. After sacking like two thirds of the staff in the big call when Panini took over, they decided to cheer the rest of us up by giving us a party on a Colombian houseboat on the Thames. Free bar, free spicy food, and free tequila. Okay, mm. The whole company split between those who can remember it and those who had. Uh, interesting yes, night. so I, I, um, I don't remember anything about that night. None of it. None of it. I can't remember um, getting everybody to drink tequila. I can't remember <laughs> kissing someone that I can't remember kissing, and I definitely can't remember being sick and having the brand new MD hold a plastic carrier bag for me to throw up in, and I don't remember. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sicking over the side of the boat, and I don't remember the lovely Kath Ard trying to bundle me into a black cab to take me home uh, to Essex. Um, I don't remember not remembering my address, only remembering my telephone number. And uh, yeah, I don't remember any of that, Alan. None of it, none of it. In, in your defense, she wasn't the only member of staff who was a bit sick. That I said, night. <laughs> no, I think what happened was, yeah, I think I what, what happened was I got. I started everybody on the tequilas, and um, it wasn't just it wasn't just one or two. It was it was the whole office, and the, and the, cha- the chaps were rushing into the into the men's loos and throwing up in the loos in there. And when we left the boat, I didn't see it. I had no I had no idea. But the stories the next day, they were sick all over the floor in the men's toilets. Uh, Liz. 
Liz, Liz Stott had to put three of the guys in a taxi and take them home to South London because they couldn't. I think she was. They couldn't get them. I think she was also helping. If I remember rightly, she was also helping two of them to. Um, be sick by patting That's the it, yeah. And, Over, and I, I, think, um, <laughs> I think I think I Gary Diller. Am I allowed? To, am I allowed to name people? Uh, probably okay. not. <laughs> oh, sorry, Gal. Someone um, threw up out out of the window of a taxi, and the sick went down the side <laughs> of the taxi. It was hideous. Um, that night was really wild, and um, it was a Thursday night. And on the Friday, it's lucky you don't. On the Friday, it. I had to send off. Um, Heartbreak high to press, and uh, when I when I woke up in the next morning, I couldn't I couldn't stand. Um, my head was spinning. I wanted to throw up. And um, Kath, who had brought me home and had stayed the night, said that she would just go in and, and do it. But um, I couldn't do that. How could I do that? Um, you know, I needed to go in because how unprofessional would that look? You know, just I needed to be there. I needed to as the editor. I needed to be in and send it off. And um, so we did. So we came in together. And we, as we came into the office, um, everybody gave me a round of applause because I turned up. And uh, yeah, we managed to get that issue out the door. Um, I had to stay a bit late, but um, I went home and then went straight to bed. But um, that was my hardest, one of the hardest days I've ever had to do. But yeah, I'm, but what a pro, I enjoyed Jenny. the applause. Yeah. It made me feel better for about five seconds. Five seconds. <laughs> but yeah, it was, um, it was pretty wild. Pretty wild. Lucky you don't remember. No, none of it. It's, yeah. it's all gone. It's just. A, just a... <laughs> I won't mention names, but I'm, I remember finding a friend of mine on the top deck, hugging, hugging a life belt, walking slowly back and forward. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh man, it was. Which I found the photographic evidence and sent yeah. it to you recently. Yeah, you did. <laughs> and if they don't send me ten pound, they'll publish it. <laughs> <laughs> Tequila, stay away from it. Yeah. Kids. Oh, yeah. and can I just? I just need to say, um, I haven't been able to drink that drink since. And <laughs> if someone, if it's someone says, "Oh, do you want one?" Even if it's in a cocktail, I can smell it, and my mouth goes all kind of watery. And I say, "No, no, no, I can't because it's going to make me throw up." So yeah, that that I still have lingering <laughs> side effects from that night. But what a great that, first yeah. impression for the uh, panini yeah. people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and the MD, he really did hold a carrier bag, and I was just like, yeah, he was holding it while I was just throwing up. It was just insane, man. Yeah, but I think everyone with Marvel was sick in a carrier bag at some point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the season pros kept risking, you know, booze in the desk drawer, apparently. So I've heard. Wow. <laughs> we were hardcore. It's funny how... Yeah, and we always did the work, and there were hardly any typos or mistakes. In the exactly. Magazines. We were hardcore. And Amazing. if you think about yeah. it, we, Alan, we would go drinking every day, every lunchtime and every evening. So it's like it was nothing to us, wasn't it? So that was kind of a rare evening that yeah. we all sort of really lost it because normally we were hardcore anyway. Yeah, it's quite sad that when they moved us to Tunbridge Wells, our local had to sack a member of staff and shut the cellar bar because of the loss yeah, of Yeah, so sad. <laughs> I first met Nick and Badsis when we both had strips in Deadline. Nick did the amazing Hugo Tate, still one of my favourite strips from that magazine. He went on to create the award-winning Leica graphic novel and is presently working on Skin Trouble, a new book that looks like it's going to be his best one yet. Richard Starkings, probably best known for changing the face of comic book lettering, 
by introducing computerised lettering with Comic Craft. He went on to create the amazing Elephant Men series. Both popped by the Last Geek studio to talk about their time at Marvel and how they got their first breaks in the business. They're followed by Kev Hopgood, creator of War Machine, who started out drawing Zoids magazine. Just going back to your career, you mentioned, um, I know we met when we were both working for Deadline, but I know before that you were at Marvel UK. Yeah. Um, is that, was that your first break in the business and how did it come about? Uh, I worked at Forbidden Planet. Um, I and I worked at Forbidden Planet uh, after I'd kind of left Chelsea School of Art, ostensibly on a year out because I didn't know whether I wanted to do fine art or illustration. And back in those days, it was difficult to kind of get a handle on. You know, your choices were very binary. You know, you would, and I was told I'd be, I should go into fine art because I had that kind of a mind. And and I was thinking, yeah, but I've got this. I know that I'm really interested in story. Where can I put it all? And I took a year out and I got a job in Forbidden Planet, uh, which was the old Denmark Street location in central London, uh, just off Charing Cross Road. And um, and in those days, people, all sorts of people used to come into that shop. And one of them was Gary Leach. Yeah. And um, and Gary was really, you know, he was a really nice bloke, very encouraging. Um, and I said, and, and he said, well, you know, you could, it's comics, isn't it? It's obvious it's comics. Well, that's yeah. one of the things that you love. I was like, well, yeah, how could this not have, you know? Um, and I, uh, and there was Alan Jones who worked around the corner in Forbidden Planet 2 who went on to, um, he was a big writer and lover of, uh, sort of film critic and lover of horror films and, and the like. And he put me in touch with Steve Cook who worked oh, for right. um, Marvel UK. Yeah. And now, I went um, in. Yeah, Steve's now works now for, head of DC's design department, is it? That's that's correct. Yeah, yeah in, in Burbank, California, and we're still really good friends. I saw him last oh, summer. Went to visit yeah. him. So, um, and it was Steve who kind of looked at my portfolio and said, "Hang on a minute, let me see if there are any kind of jobs going." And he introduced me to Richard Starkings, and Richard Starkings said, "Well, actually, there's a job. There's a job here going as a color separator." Um, and I met him and I met John Tomlinson and Steve White and a bunch of other kind of uh, people who were editors there at the time, Simon Furman, who was writing Transformers. And I got the job. Um, I, I applied for the job and I got the job as a color separator and was sort of proved my worth. And shortly after that was promoted to uh, uh, from the color separation department to Steve White's um, assistant, I think. Um, and, and, you know, in those days, Marvel – Marvel UK was sort of like a university of comics. You hit the ground running and you learned a lot. Yeah. Um, it's amazing for that. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've been through this with, with other of your interviewees. And drinking as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of that. Were you working um, there when the, um, there was the massive accident with the, was it the, um, the crane? Con- yes. The crane. The crane. The, I was working there at that time. Yeah. Well, a huge um, crane fell straight into the office. Uh, we felt it. We, we we were just working. It was a normal work day, and then suddenly the whole building vibrated, uh, and it was really scary because we yeah. didn't know what the hell had happened. Um, and you know, the crane outside and the building site outside in Redan Place had gone down. Um, yeah, that was pretty terrifying, and and the wreckage was was. I, I can't remember what happened. I remember us. 
I suppose we had to take the rest of the day off um, um, because they had to kind of make sure the building was safe. You probably um, all went down the pub. We probably did. <laughs> that was our <laughs> usual reaction to any kind of um, nightmare scenario. Just going back to your Marvel UK days, um, I think you as an editor there when they really started the Amer- first wave of the American titles with Death's Ed. That was me, yeah. Didn't you give Brian Hitch his first job or help him? That was me, and I'm still working with him. Do you want to talk a bit about that, Emma? Yeah, it was very exciting. I've, I've got to give credit to Ian Rimmer. Ian was the editor of Captain Britain, and he hadn't started the Captain Britain ball rolling. There was two editors, Tim... I can't remember his last name, but it was a Tim, and there was a Chris. And they had preceded Ian... And the, the, there was a lot of uh, interest about doing Captain Britain as a monthly. And I, I want to say that it was the first one had been put together. And this is post Alan Moore. This is when Jamie Delano was writing it and um, Alan Davis was still drawing it. And Alan, I feel, was the sort of captain of the ship. He wanted to do it. And it was revolutionary in that it had... I don't know, eight to 11 pages in each issue. The script prior to Jamie was by Alan and they had a budget for eight pages, but Alan would turn the artwork on its side and draw two pages for the price of one. So then it was decided they do Captain Britain monthly. Now, the, the sort of blessing and the curse of Marvel UK at that time was Transformers the most successful Marvel UK book, I think, since, before, since. So that had raised management expectations on sales because Transformers sold 125,000 copies a week at its peak and had outsold 2000 AD for like two weeks. (laughs) But 2000 AD was all original material and... Transformers was very cheap to make because at least half of it was reprint. So even though Simon was writing original material, even though they had a budget for covers, uh, original artwork, it was very profitable. So Transformers was the weekly book alongside which all launches were compared. So we did Thundercats, we did Spider-Man and Zoids, we did uh, Real Ghostbusters, which actually was very successful for about a year. You know, we originated a lot of material. That was one where I convinced the artist to take less on a page rate in return for more work. So, you know, the the struggle with any editor is balancing the budget. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that was the way I managed to get... 11 pages of original material in Ghostbusters every week, every fortnight originally. So Captain Britain lasted just a year and two months, not a long time. And we started talking about doing Captain Britain for the American market. And I would say that there was definitely a reluctance at Marvel US for us to do a book they competed with their books. Still was years later. Oh, yeah. Well, we 
we couldn't get approval on Captain Britain. And at, at some point, Tom Falco came to visit for two months. We had heard that he had a falling out with Jim Shooter. Tom was great. And actually, Tom started reading 2000 AD every week. And he went back to America and launched Marvel Comics Presents as a sort of 2000 AD for um, Marvel characters. Yeah, the direct connection. And we, I think he steered us. He said, you Brits do hard science fiction. So he steered us away from Captain Britain and we came up with Dragon's Claws, uh, which was Simon's idea. I think while Ian was still there, we had talked about a rollerball Harlem Heroes type storyline. And Simon made that concrete, um, originally called Dragon's Teeth, um, and then I suggested Death's Head, which, uh, who of course was a character hunting Transformers. You know, I was like, why, why create something new when we've got this built-in audience that we can lure away from Transformers? Simon and I used to play squash together at the uh, right round the corner from the Redan. Was it was it, maybe it's a YMCA or something? But we used to play squash over there. And I remember that I suggested that idea to him after we'd played squash. And of course, Simon was like, I'm going to be able to go freelance, <laughs> which he did. And, and there's a, there was a big gap between talking about these books and launching them, because in fact, I had left Marvel UK when Death's Head was just coming out. Brian had worked for me on Action Force. He was sent down to London by Steve Parkhouse. And at the time, his work looked like Steve Parkhouse because, of course, Steve was recommending brushes and pens. Um, but Brian was also very good at um, learning style. You know, when he worked on a couple of issues of Transformers inking Jeff Senior, it was very... You know, for a 16-year-old to be able to adapt to somebody's style was was remarkable, you know. And I had him ink some Mike Collins, G.I. Joe's Action Force. He was very dependable, very adaptable, and very young. But for a young person to be that reliable was amazing. You, you don't often come across youngsters like that that dedicated although i did also hire dougie braithwaite oh wow and he was 15 well, i was there <laughs> when um jim chunk came in oh wow he's about yeah. 16 and it's when the bullpen was still there with liam brian everyone they were uh, and was jim british yeah yeah he was ter- wow. he was so good though at 16 you could yeah you can see a shockwave go through the bullpen you know yeah well liam actually did an issue of death said yeah, he had done a dread. A lot of people did one dread and brought the artwork over to Marvel UK to say, look. And I could never quite figure out whether they wanted to work at Marvel or they wanted to work at 2000 AD because that was the era where 
it was the beginning of artists that were more interested in working on 2000 AD. Yeah. Brian Bolland, Dave Gibbons, Kev O'Neill. 2000 AD was where they made their name, but they were looking beyond at the American market. You know, Brian really wanted to work on Green Lantern. Dave wanted to have that shot of working in the American market. And there were a few years there. 2000 AD goes all the way back to 77. So I would say by the time I was working at Marvel UK, 10 years later, you had the young artists who read 2000 AD when they were 10 to 15. They were now 20 to 25. And 2000 AD was the book they wanted to work on. You know, they wanted to work on Judge Dredd. And and I would say, actually, now there's there's a whole stable of artists who haven't looked very far beyond 2000 AD. Some of them have sort of nibbled at the American market, most successfully Chris Weston, Liam Sharp, Henry Flint did some work for the US. But, but you know, do you see how there's sort of a stable of 2000 AD Judge Dredd monthly artists? But we didn't have that. We People were using 2000, Marvel, but Harrier, Marvel, 2000 AD, American Comics. Yeah. That was the perceived trajectory. So we lost a lot of artists. Barry Kitson went to 2000 AD. Kev Hopgood, who he did some of his most amazing work on Zoids. He was my roommate briefly. Alex one of my best mates in London these days. Lives oh, is he really? Yeah. From him, Bromley. I haven't seen him. We took him down to Long Beach. We went to the Queen Mary when he was last in California. So I got him onto Zoids. I kept pushing Kev's work on Forest in front of um, Ian. And finally Zoids came along. And he did these incredible double-page spreads. He was insane. I actually had the first one. I had the artwork until about 20 years ago because it was one of my favorite pieces, but um, I had to pay the mortgage. So uh, Kev uh, worked with Dave Hine, and then he went over to 2000 AD. And that was sort of the end of the, the trickle. I mean, there's continued to be that. And I would say Liam is someone that wanted to work on Marvel yeah. comics or DC comics. What was the question? <laughs> Just about the Marvel UK times, which because um, I came yeah. in at the end of it when Liam and everyone was already firmly installed in the basement in the bullpen. Oh, right, because for the longest time, I'm not sure if Robert was still there, Sutherland, but he wanted artists on staff. And then I think Paul cemented that. I never thought it was a good idea. I still don't think it's a good idea. <laughs> but it is. it does create a great studio. It was good to see the look of fear on the faces when the editors went down and mentioned the deadlines to them. <laughs> so from then on, going back to how you started in comics, mm. you've, you're always a fan. I remember seeing your work when I was young in um, fanzines. And oh, yeah, I was uh, started off in the fanzines. Yeah. So, yeah. so how did you get your first break? I'm trying to think, actually. Was it Harrier? Because I remember seeing it. Yeah, actually, yeah, I had work in Harrier Comics. Yeah. Is uh, James Hill wrote a thing called Forest. Yeah. So you know, you know, you know, James. 
And um, I, I, I think I drew, I drew the first issue, then um, drawing the second issue, and I realised that I wasn't getting paid for this. I couldn't afford to do it. Which is a shame for James. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that got me noticed by um, some of the guys at Marvel UK. Um, and, in fact, and what didn't hurt is that I, I'd also met Richard Starkings at comic conventions previously, yep. and I've met him through the fanzines and what have you. And he just got a, a job at Marvel on, on the staff, yep. so he was all like our little little yeah. mole, <laughs> basically. So um, he he got my stuff under John Tomlinson's nose, and um, who else who worked there? Um, Simon Furman and. Steve White came, I think he started about the same time I, I did. Gary Gilbert would have been yeah, Gary Gilbert, yeah. He got Steve's job, I think. Yeah. Oh, who, wrote, who wrote Zoids? I can't remember his name now. He's bugging me. Is it Ian Rimmer? Ian Rimmer, that's the one. Yeah, yeah he, he is, well, Richard sort of um, told me told him about me, but he was the one who actually got me the gig, ah, which okay. was um, uh, drawing Zoids from Spider-Man Zoids. Ah, someone put that on Facebook recently, yeah. I think. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, I saw it and, and shared it. <laughs> <laughs> That was like um, Transformers. It was it was giant it. giant dino, dinosaur robots, and I, I I can't understand why they weren't bigger than Transformers. Cause, no, well they were because they were dinosaurs. <laughs> oh well, indeed, yes, they're bigger than trucks, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> I never got the why why would the robot turn into a truck? It just didn't. I know that never made sense. Really. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I I much prefer drawing the Zoids. I, you know, I thought yeah. Yeah, this is great. These dinosaurs and robots. What else do you need? Yeah, that, that sounds great. <laughs> And then what else did you do for Marvel UK? Um, it well, from there, I think I spent a year. Did I spend a year doing that? I spent is it uh, quite a while anyway? And then um, I got offered of that Action Force, so I drew, I drew quite a few Action Force issues, and then um, I did some Thundercats, I think, and some Ghostbusters. Did a couple of Doctor Who stories. Oh, just hang on. Can you hear this? Because I'm actually sitting in a, in a half Dalek, and that's, uh, that's, that's the sound of the casters. So I'll, I'll try and keep that to a minimum as well. A real half Dalek? <laughs> um, no, it, it, it looks a lot like an ergonomic chair, but uh, no, I can I can dream. Kira, tell us the strangest yeah. thing that ever happened to you in Tunbridge Wells when we moved out there. The strangest thing that ever happened to me in Tunbridge Wells. Yeah, there was a lot of strange things because Tumber- Tunbridge Wells was kind of a big culture yeah. shock. Um, wasn't it Coach and Horses Passage was where the office was? Yeah, it was. Yeah. But I, I remember actually um, how I remember the story was um, the post guy, I can't remember his name, was delivering Steve. post one day. Steve, that's right, Steve. <laughs> Steve was delivering post one day and he came up to me and he was just like, um, Hey Kira, you know, uh, there's this parcel and I don't know what to do, but it's ticking. <gasps> um and it's addressed to the Doctor Who department. And um I was like, What do you mean it's ticking? And he's like, it, it's ticking, listen to it. And yeah, it just listened. You know, how often do you get like something that sounds like a bomb? Um, <laughs> you know, so I, I picked up the parcel and there was a very clear ticking. And there was also a flashing LED light. Oh my gosh! Um, that was coming through the the box. So I was like, okay, hang on one second. And I think I called Helen Alley and said, okay, this has happened. It's very suspicious. Steve brought it to my attention. So she was like, okay, get it up here immediately. Like, and uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I know the box did have the words "Doctor Who must die" scrawled all over it. Apparently, as well. 
Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> our, our inside, I think maybe. And anyway, we brought it upstairs to management, which probably wasn't very clever. <laughs> so the box was taken up to senior management, and uh, they had a look at it, and they immediately got onto the police. The police contacted the bomb squad in London, and the bomb squad came in a helicopter all the way down to Tunbridge Wells, wow. which is like, you know, in sleepy Tunbridge Wells. This is like the best thing that ever happened to us. So, so down, down came the helicopter and I think landed on, on the roof. I, I don't know how much I'm exagger, exaggerating now, which actually happened, but it's I, I definitely saw them abseil down the side of the building and they went into, everybody evacuated and they sailed down um, the side of the building and went into the management floor. And we were all sent to the pub. Which was... <laughs> that was, I'm going to just. Only gonna... made the day greater. The way I remember it, slightly differently, is the bomb was on the second floor. There were two floors. I was on the first floor at the yeah. time. The news got around it was the bomb, a bomb might be up there, but it's probably nothing. So that floor was evacuated, but the management at the time said, oh, we could carry on with work. And me and my mate Karina just said, I'll tell you what, we're going to have an early lunch. If you're still here when we get back, you know, all's fair. Oh, and good. just yeah. if you left, he said, oh, you should probably all go just in case. Yeah, so when we were brought up, I think after we came back from lunch, I know that I was brought up um, to Helen and Richard's office and the entire Bob squad was there and they had laid everything on the ground, like, something you see on TV, like forensics with tags. And um, there was chopped meat. There was um, ta like tablets with the actual address, the name and the address of the person. Um, and there was all of those <laughs> letters that um, Alan has mentioned, like saying, kill the doctor, the doctor must die. And yeah, it was pretty elaborate. There was probably about 100 items that were in that box. Wow. I'll never recover from yeah. seeing um, special forces actually taking fingerprints off a packet of chocolate hobnobs. Yeah. <laughs> and also a tip for any would-be bombers out there, don't put a return address on any bombs you send because that's how they catch you. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, especially on your tablets. So yeah. the medication had the name and address of the guy who sent it, and they just basically got in the helicopter <laughs> and they went and they just picked up this guy, and that was it. I don't wow. remember. There's a woman called Liz Teal joined around that time, which was great. But that was the day she had a job interview. She turned up for a job interview at Panini by then, got to the office to find police tape, do not cross. And police outside the office where she was used to have an interview in body armor oh my goodness and she went, just oh, being a geordie she went to the nearest pub met the bosses and got the job for initiative yeah it was a fake bomb ah. but i remember one of the cops saying to me it was actually whoever did it knew the stuff because it was actually looked when they did the x-ray or whatever they do you know yeah. it looked like it could be real so yeah. um, yeah. it came it was just after the Doctor Who movie was on TV. Someone obviously yeah. didn't like it much. So. <laughs> yeah, just another day at Marvel. In my time at Marvel UK, I also met the mighty Quinn brothers. Apparently there's three of them, but only two have worked at Marvel UK. 
Tim Crin, who along with Bambus Giorgio, kept me in my job for the first few months by taking me for long walks when I was having artistic tantrums. And his younger brother, Jason Crin, who at one point even became my boss, which was a very strange turn of events. I blame it on Tunbridge Wells. And, and how did I get to Marvel? Well, Marvel, um, at some point, had decided to open an office in London and they were purely reprinting um, American material, but in a British style of comic. Um, and I thought, hey, wouldn't it be a cool idea to have some funny stuff in there, some typically British funny stuff? Even as I thought of that idea, I thought, as a Marvel fan, I would say no, but it would be very handy for me financially if they said yes. And, and funnily enough, the guy I approached, a guy called Paul Neary, said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and I'd teamed up with a fantastic cartoonist called Dickie Howard at that time. And so he and I started doing lots and lots of stuff for Marvel in the UK. Um, Flat Earth 33 and a third? Well, it was a billion things. I mean, you know, the first thing we did was a strip about Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, a funny strip about Adolf Hitler. Because I've always felt that, you know, you can um, destroy um, evil best by um, laughing at it. Yep. And there's nothing funnier than uh, Nazis. You know, they're a joke to uh, humanity. Um, and that works. And so we went on and created other little strips um, that would be half pages or full pages. Um, one was called Hulk the Menace, which was a combination of Dennis the Menace and the Incredible Hulk. And um, so a little boy who happened to be green, living in a back street in England with his mum and dad. Um, and instead of a catapult in his back pocket, he had an axe. So it was a bit tougher than the stuff we were getting in the Beano by then. So, yeah. Um, What's the sort of comic, what comic really I hate? hate. I try not to use the word hate too much it's in life. Dislike intensely. I, I think hate is an overused word these days, and I try to pull back from using it um, uh, uh, more than 100 times a day. Um, and, and initially I thought, well, I'm not going to use the word hate on a comic book until I thought, yes, I am. Uh, because while I was at Marvel, one of the comic books that were dropped on me to edit was Barbie. So I had to edit Barbie for I forget how many issues I did until I handed it on myself to my brother, my younger brother, who, who had come into Marvel Comics and he had a um, daughter, suitable age. And I suggested to my boss at Marvel that Jason will uh, be the perfect editor for it because he knows all about Barbie and Ken. But I hated it. And the reason I hated it was because the toy company behind uh, Barbie were breathing down my neck all the time and wouldn't allow us to veer in any direction with Barbie and Ken in our storytelling or whatever. It was all about make sure you've got enough pink on each page. It was just a horrible experience. It's a shame as well. Oh, you mentioned DC I, Thompson had a great history of brilliant girls comics. I have nothing against Barbie herself or Ken. I think they're a very nice couple and I wish them well. Um, living in Canada. Well, I've heard she's left in for Action Man now, anyway. She's left in for Action Man. Well, well there you go. I've still got an Action Man doll that someone, not a million miles away, killed when I was working at Marvel. Did I kill your He killed man? it and left it on my desk when I was editing Action Man comic. <laughs> what did I do to it? I can't remember, but I know I jokingly said it came back from the dead. And you illustrated it with various bits of, like, nice. runes and stuff. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's the only zombie Action Man in the world now. That's where it is. When, um, when, um... It's going out with Callisto that some marketing woman gave me. Oh, Callisto. Yeah. Wow. I've got some.
that goes back to when you started at Marvel because you started in um, when Alan O'Keefe, who's the boss now, the big boss, was running the, um, yeah. what was he called? The children's department? He was head of the nursery department. Yeah. Then you did and all the work and we got all the glory in the superhero departments. That's right. Yeah. I started out in the nursery department. I'd, I'd got in there. I thought, brilliant. I'm going to, you know, going to be working with superheroes. This is fantastic. And uh, no, the first comic I, I got to work on was it was Barbie was it yeah that's right Tim said it was, was Barbie. It Cindy or Barbie or something he palmed off no you, it, was, it was Barbie I don't think I ever did Cindy okay I missed out on that it was Barbie and Care Bears it was both of them together and they were both fortnightly so at the time but Care Bears was were on their last legs and it was just all reprint stuff okay. and uh and yeah and Barbie as well, which which we did relaunch to make it more of a sort of girls' lifestyle magazine and uh, encourage girls to look like Barbie. <laughs> it was like some of the some of the mags that I've done. You'd think, oh my god, why, why me, why have I been chosen for that? But I actually got really into Barbie. Yeah, you were... I, I was a big fan. Yeah. I was a big fan. I thought, actually, she's really good. And we had great comic strips in it and great stories in it. And Mario Capaldi did. I was going to say, yeah, he's a great artist. Yeah, he was fantastic. So we did have, you know, did get to work with some really good artists on that. It was great. I preferred that to Care Bears. Yeah, obviously. They tried to get me on Thomas the Tank Engine, but I only lasted two issues. Hmm. Yeah, I remember. Didn't I try and get you on Thomas the Tank Engine? I think I did. And someone said, um, I think it was Jenny Rackett, the previous editor, said, and I did a making dues at weekends. And I thought, well, I go down the pub at weekends. So I also remember when we had to move office. I think there was so much left uh, during different moves and yeah. things. There again, it was a bit like those where you're where you're burning all the important data. Like, do you remember when we'd have to clear out the when we cleared out the vault in yeah, in Arundel um, Street at Marvel? Yeah, we were working together in Arundel House at Marvel UK just as Panini took over and moved us all to Tunbridge Wells. God, and and the the great comics in that vault. Yeah. I mean, I did manage to get quite a few of them, but uh, there were so many others that I thought, oh God, I'll kill myself just do you bringing the guy who turned up. We tried to give him to Oxfam. And we took no. Oxfam, we had like an entire vault of comics going for Oxfam. And he yeah. turned up the last day in a mini. Oh, and he needed a... a truck to take them. And he just... Oh. Honestly, I mean, it it was shocking. It was shocking. I think kind of what happened to the, all that art and those comics was a bit like... You know, the BBC when they uh, trashed all the uh, 60s Doctor yeah. Who and stuff it's one of those where you think oh shit how did that happen and and the fact that we okay albeit unwillingly played a part in that our hands are as red as theirs in our defense we tried to post as much of it as back to the artist as we could i mean well, yeah. our last desperate few days trying to get everything out 
That's right. I mean, you're sort of you're putting that. This is our Nuremberg trials. You're, you're That's my putting, defense, and I stand you're by it. your defense. <laughs> but you're still on trial. You're not a good Nazi. Well, you, <laughs> you're gonna hang for uh, it. You're right. Can I just have that on record? I'm not a good Nazi. <laughs> not a good Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> we were actually the—I don't know if you remember—but we were the last people to leave a Wundle House. We were we were fiddling while Rome burned, yeah. and and Arundel House was great. It, yeah. it 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 was such a great headquarters for Marvel UK, and uh, I do remember we had our old office and. We had our own because you were on my team, yep. and um, Glenn Dakin was, yep. Yep. and Kira, yep. Kira Mulvaney, and the, uh, Dan Rachel was he? Yeah, he yep. was there. Yeah, Liz um, stopped for yeah. a while, and um, was yes. Gallian, Gary Gilbert in our team then, or the? I don't think he was. It, it, no, I don't think he was in our team. Oh no, he was in the uh, room. Oh, we had Steve. Oh yeah, I'd forget the guy who always talked in uh, in uh, cliches. Yeah, it was like that. That's why we're not saying surnames here. So <laughs> we it was Steve. You can guess who we like because well, we tell the surnames. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's all a bit much of a muchness. It's. <laughs> I just remember so the you... last day in the office when we'd cleared everything out. Yeah, we were the last people in our old room. And we comics put gone. We put Mondragon on. Yeah. I forget the name of the song now. It was Orchestra Mon Orchestra Mondragon. And the song was called Voy a Mil per Hora. That's it. A million Voy miles a an hour. Yeah. I know Spanish. Yeah. Three Hello boys. Hello girls. It's <laughs> me again. <laughs> the other thing was... I remember is when we finished packing up the last bit from our room. This mouse went out into the middle of an empty room and just fell on its back and died. It was so sad, oh, but somehow oh, symbolic of what done on. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow. So, I know that's when you started. So I remember seeing you taking over my role as Spider-Man for the office because I was getting too fat then to dress up as Spider-Man when kids came oh, in. Oh, God, yeah. I, did. I actually was Spider-Man and kind of uh, Jay Jonah as well because I, I had to appear... Well, no, I wasn't actually JJ, but I put the waistcoat on, and uh, oh, I, was, I, I don't think yeah. I had a cigar. But you did, uh, act, you did act a bit like him as a boss now and again as well, so that does make uh, sense. We actually did you. We, we didn't use to fight. We did have one big massive fight. I still think that's the best fight in publishing history. It is, and it nearly. We were both so, and neither of us have. I don't think anyone could say either of us were particularly bad-tempered or no. you know had a, both had a reputation for being mellow and suddenly one day he came in in bad moods and you um, had we, the audacity we, to tell me some text had written should have a comma instead of a full stop and i don't even know, know why each I, other words. I don't even know why i made a thing out of telling and why i didn't just correct it myself and put the the, I think the, we were just both feeling. I think it was an apostrophe, thing. actually, Alan. Was it? Oh, fuck it, it was an apostrophe. Don't start. Don't start. It was, a, it was an apostrophe. <laughs> what yeah. I love about that is we had this massive row in the argument. Open plan office. Suddenly yeah. we're using the worst possible language you could use in an open plan office. It really was. I Everyone mean, would fall was... in silence, and we both storm out saying, "I'm fucking shitting, fucking pissed off with this place." I'm 
you. I know. I was waiting for someone to hold us back, but no one did. I think they wanted us to actually have a fight. I think it would would have been... selling tickets. They were were gathered around going, fight, 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 fight. (laughs) I just remember us both going to the same pub to sulk. Yes, we did. They'd seen each other in there and it was, oh, God. (laughs) It's that word we can't say anymore. I don't think it took long to calm down and see that it was the most ridiculous row. We were fine within 10 minutes, but we decided not to tell anyone in the office for about three hours that we'd actually made up. (laughs) I mean, like, as, as if. As if either of us would care about an apostrophe. Yeah. And the worst thing it is, you meant were right. so much. I don't know why I didn't just change it myself. Next time well, we I, ever do... I know we said next time we do that, we should get some furniture from a stunt team or something, you know, and breakable yeah. furniture. <laughs> smash it over It should be a comma. Smash. Yeah. Oh, an apostrophe, actually. That's true. Mind you, didn't we also get told off for playing football with Big Bird? Was that you or was that Gary? I can't remember. I, we had a big bird, life-size big bird I, in the yeah, office. Yeah, we still Sesame got Street. the big The big bird is still there. And um, we were like playing football with him in the office about two what, in the kicking afternoon. Kicking him around? Sorry? Kicking big bird? No, he was in goal. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. We weren't being... A, you know, obviously, you can't attack big bird. That would be Although, out of all of those characters, big bird would be the one you would attack. Yeah, that's true. I mean, he just looks so stupid. Special thanks to David Leach there for a little cameo before Jason Crin hit the mic. Meanwhile, down the pub, let's um, Kira, got any good memories of Marvel? What would be your standout memory of that time? Oh, God, that is hard. Um, my good memories of Marvel. Oh, they were all good memories. I mean, it was such a great place to work and there was, um, you know, such a fantastic bunch of people. Um, I guess it's, look, we're all going to say the same answer to that. It was probably Cheshire cheese. (laughs) You know, like uh, nights after work, lunches during work. And not just that that too, we had the Devonshire around the corner, didn't we? The Devonshire pub that we used to have, used to go around there in in the summer, stand outside and... um, yeah, I think that the the thing about Marvel that made it magic was that we were all really, really good friends. And yeah. it didn't matter which room you was working on in or which magazine you was working on. When it when it got to lunchtime or it got to after work, we would all bundle out and just hang out together and yeah. just, you know, chat about yeah. no stuff, comics, what was going on in the industry, what was going on between us, music. We just had a laugh. We laughed all the time. And it was such a terrific bunch of people. Like, I mean, it was artists, illustrators, editors, letters. Yeah. And, and there was no, um, you know, there was no hierarchy. Like, everybody was right. really equal. It was just, you know, I never felt discriminated against right. against it in any way. Um, it just it was absolutely a, a great working environment. Yeah. And it was really because it was, sorry, go ahead, uh, Maria. So I just remember I used to have a studio on Great Guildford Street near Borough and I used to walk with my very old dog at that point across the river and bring in the artwork and take this the whatever the script was back again. And uh, I just remember coming in one day and I can't remember who was dressed as Spider-Man and I, it could possibly have been Alan <laughs> or Dan. Um, there was always somebody dressed up as a superhero. <laughs> yeah. It kind of... And there was- 
there were so many people who visited the place. You know, do you remember there was like people like Mike, Mo- the motivator, who did workouts on the group? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but he never did the work. He got us all up there. Yeah. The camera crew set everything up, and then he said it was too cold, and he went home. Yeah. <laughs> so he lacked the motivation, which was shocking. That's not very motivating. And that, that office Spider-Man costume was never ever washed. It was the worst thing in the world. That's not a surprise at all. <laughs> yeah. I had to wear it in the first few months there when I was still thin. I put it on for some little kid who'd come in who wanted you know, to meet Spidey. And I had to jump out and give him his prize dressed as Spider-Man, which sounds okay. great. I made one fatal mistake. I forgot to put him in an American accent. So, oh, oh, I'm um, Spider-Man. Here's your present. What a, what a disappointment. That I know. <laughs> it's not the only time I've made kids cry, but, you know. But do, but do you remember all the um, kids that used to storm in to the office? Yeah. Do you remember every now and again there would be, like, a, a group of kids that would just break through security and storm through Marvel, which was just <laughs> hilarious. Like, absolute fans. It was so hard to get past Marvel security, wasn't it? That old guy asleep on the door. Who... <laughs> One day came back, and it was after a bank holiday, and um, he said to, I think it was Paul Neary, I think you need to call the police. Looks like, looks like someone stole all your computers over the weekend. And that was easy. Really? Great security, yeah. Someone would yeah. come in, literally stole all the Macs, and he just thought, oh, well, I'll tell the boss when they come in on Monday or Tuesday. Oh, my God. That's nearly it for this special edition. I'm going to leave the last words to Sven Wilson and Dan Rachel. Sven helped create the classic Marvel figurine collection with me. He might not have been there at Marvel back in the day, but he was there in spirit. And it gives me a chance to talk about the Star Wars holiday special. Where I would want to go is Kashyyyk. Pre-Imperial invasion, of course. That seems like a really cool place to hang out, and who doesn't want to make friends with a bunch of Wookiees oh, cool. and get to experience their whole world? Is that a planet? Is that a planet? Would it be like it was featured in the holiday special? <laughs> it better be. The holiday special does not exist. <laughs> I don't know. You've got your know, Chewbacca's grandfather being a pervert <laughs> over, you know, virtual reality goggles and yes, you know, Chewbacca's wife with an apron on. It's fantastic. So weird. Itchy and lumpy. I'm, I'm yeah, glad I've never seen it. I've only seen clips of it on the internet. It's now official continuity because you remember the recent movies they did mention Life Day. Ah, Life Day. I remember seeing that when I was a kid and I just couldn't understand how Star Wars could be so awesome. And this was Star Wars and the worst thing I'd ever seen. Mm. It's amazing, it was, isn't it? It's so, it just about broke my brain. I couldn't mm. understand... When it was Scott Gray back in the Marvel days told me about it, and I'd somehow never heard of it before. And I was convinced Scott was winding me up. Even when we all went down to a room in work time to watch the film, I thought it was a wind-up. And then it turned out to be as bad as Scott was telling me, even though it's got Harrison Ford and everyone in. Yeah, he thought, it can't be that bad. It's going to be great. It'd be fine. Yeah. No, it's terrible. But it does have uh, B. Arthur singing a song, which is what I look for in my Star Wars really. Well, I was just thinking, actually, because we're near the end of the podcast, and it did end up on a brilliant song. So if anyone can remember the lyrics to um, Carrie Fisher's Finest Hour singing, was it Life Day or something at the end of that? Yes, and her pupils were huge for some reason. Yeah, I don't know why great. that was. I'm sure that was just um, something with the lighting, maybe. 
Could be, could yeah. be. I think it was. Yeah, I think it was the lights that made her wobble a bit in some scenes as well. Indeed, indeed. You guys are geeks. Whatever it takes to get you through yeah. the experience of filming the Star Wars holiday special, I guess. So, Alan, when do we go? Do we leave now? Or is it? do you get a bit of time because of the lockdown? What, on your spaceship? Yeah. No, it's all ready for you, actually. So if you'd like to step out your doors now, there should oh be a spaceship God. waiting for you. Yeah, there it is. Um, with Shh. all your comics and artwork loaded on there. Yay! Awesome. You've been listening to The Last Geek in Space. Thanks to all my guests and Paul Morris and Vegetables at Last for the music. Last Geek in Space is a Bullpen Productions creation. For more information on Bullpen Productions, check out our website at bullpenproductions.co.uk and alancouncil.com. And while you're there, buy my books. Step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for man. Yeah, well, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, your problem with these podcasts is you're not doing enough foreplay. Yeah. <laughs> it's too hardcore, Al. Like you need to warm us up. <laughs> Women are demanding. It's like straight in question one. What was your favorite? You're like, oh. <laughs> oh God. <laughs>